Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. LA Times Middle East Bureau Chief Nabi Bulos has described the scale of building collapses in Turkey this way. Multi-story apartment blocks have been squashed into pancake stacks of concrete. Others ground down to irregular mounds of rock detritus and distressed rebar. Still others stand dangerously askew with bottom floors pulverized. Ever since the 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Turkey and Syria on February 6th, seismologists and civil engineers have warned that similar destruction is possible here in California. We find out why and hear from California rescue workers on the ground in Turkey after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Incredibly, at least three people were pulled alive from the rubble in Turkey yesterday, 10 days after the earthquake struck southern Turkey and northern Syria and caused a death toll that's now nearing 44,000. But such miracles have been harder to come by with each passing day, and a disaster response team from California knows this well. The Los Angeles County Fire Department Urban Search and Rescue Team is one of just two special international disaster response teams that have been deployed to Turkey under USAID. And joining me now is Battalion Chief Frank Infante and Josh Svensson, Structure Specialist on the team. Welcome to both of you. I can't thank you enough for being with us. And in, Frank, and in fact, Frank, um, wh- where are you right now and what's it like? Uh, we're currently here in the city of Adiaman, Turkey. It's about uh, it's probably about uh, close to nine fifteen, and it's about twenty three degrees Fahrenheit at the moment. Oh, wow! So extremely cold. It is. It is, and that uh, I heard you earlier stating on on the uh, some live rescues uh, happening throughout the country, and um, that brings joy to us, and we're hopeful there'll be more. 
but a lot of the survivability has to do with the the variations in weather and climate uh, throughout this country. So you are in a colder place where the likelihood of finding anyone alive is less, I imagine. Yes, it, it, that is a, a large obstacle for us um, in our rescue uh, mission. But uh, we don't give up hope. We're here with the people of Turkey and especially the people in the community of Adiaman, you know, to assist them. The uh, local government, the local first responders and rescuers have taken a larger role, not only in the rescue, but the coordination efforts here on the ground and um, sort of uh, taking a lot more responsibility and uh, working around the clock, you know, for their fellow citizens. Yeah. So does this remain a rescue effort at this point? It sounds like it, but but not a recovery one. Or is it transitioning at this point, Frank? You know what? We have not been told that we have uh, gone on to a different phase other than the uh, rescue mode. Um, that is usually something that um, is decided and announced by the local government. And we're here to assist them in whatever phase they're in. But most of the focus now for USAID here in Turkey is more on uh, rapidly getting all the other relief issues and humanitarian needs uh, for all the people here in uh, Turkey and in Syria. Josh Svensson, as a structure specialist on the team, what have you seen in terms of destruction and, and what role are you playing in trying to find people, as well as trying to determine whether people can go back into structures that that may be okay? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having us. Our role on the team generally is to uh, accompany the search and rescue teams as they go through the city, as they go to these structures, to make sure as we enter these structures, we're keeping them safe, we're helping them design shoring, doing analysis of the structure and where the vertical loads are being carried so that we can uh, perform those rescues without putting our team at unnecessary risk. Um, another important part of what we do is during the initial assessment of the city, we accompany the recon teams as they're analyzing these structures, looking for ones we believe to have uh, survivable voids, void spaces where we think uh, victims could still be found living. Um, as the mission you know, has evolved, we've also been able to help perform uh, more wide area analysis of the city, documenting the destruction through the city. And when you ask about that, um, I think we're all going to go home and be able to remember or start to think about what we've seen, because I think none of us really can process what we're seeing. Uh, in this city of 250,000, we've documented 1,500 buildings that are completely destroyed, and most of those are pancake collapses of multi-story buildings. Um, we've also seen another 1,500 buildings with major damage and just... Uh, trying to imagine what would that what an earthquake like this would be like back home. Um, it, again, it's a lot to process. It's hard. I tell the people as they tell me, hey, are you guys okay? It's cold. I'm like, wow, the city here's seen damage and destruction. Like you can't comprehend it. Something like if one of these buildings collapsed in America, it'd be national news for, for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And there's thousands of them in the city. So Josh, you've responded to other earthquake disaster zones before i imagine so have you ever seen anything like this i I don't think anybody's seen anything like this i I don't know if the world's ever seen anything like this 
this is the worst uh, earthquake I think that's happened um, on the planet this year, but it happened in probably one of the most, if you were to pick a point on the planet where this earthquake would have the worst impact, it'd be a place like this with buildings that are highly susceptible, that have high population density, um, and it happened at the worst possible time. This earthquake struck at 4.30 in the morning when everybody was at home in bed. Um, the terror of being part of this earthquake is just hard to comprehend. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's hard to put words to it. You mentioned that it's densely populated. Have you been able to deem enough buildings or areas safe to inhabit to get people out of the cold, um, off the street, or are there too few available? You know, this is a good question. We right away started realizing as we're doing the rescue and reconnaissance efforts, people are on the street sitting by little campfires, burning garbage to stay warm. Um, but we've seen the national response has been really uh, amazing. I think the, the country of Turkey deserves a lot of credit for how they've mobilized um, so many resources. It appears that a lot of the city, just people moved to warmer places. They got in their car, they somehow got on a bus. And our, the number of people we're seeing don't line up with the number of standing structures we're seeing. So we think that there's a lot of people that have left. Um, to go to live with relatives or things like that. But the people that are on the street, you know, AFAID, the National um, Emergency Response Organization, is doing a really uh, – we see uh, camps going up. And um, at this point, they haven't asked us to assist with structural assessments. This is a country that has a very um, mm. large and uh, well-developed structural engineering community. So, uh, so far, we haven't been uh, doing that other than just uh, as people encounter us on the streets and we've been able to talk with them. But understandably, people are very shaken. They don't want to go back in their structures. So very few people are moving back inside right now. I see. Frank, you've also been saying that you've seen a lot of people potentially with crush syndrome. What is crush syndrome exactly? So uh, crush syndrome is uh, when somebody is trapped under the rubble for large amounts of time and a certain limb uh, or extremity is uh, under pressure, either pinched or they're trapped on it, or um, there is some type of uh, circulation circulation constriction within that uh, extremity. Once that pressure is relieved without any type of uh, medication prior to, the toxins that have built up in that extremity start recirculating into the system and then affect the body uh, in the cardiac area and could cause dysrhythmias, including up to a uh, cardiac arrest. And then, you know, the rescue efforts that we uh, spent hours and the hope that the victim had um, just plummets because of not uh, addressing those issues prior to hmm. removing the victim. Our doctors have, uh, from our team, have worked with the uh, local doctors here and the paramedics are on scene on collaborating on an algorithm on uh, getting some paperwork out for the local first responders and also kind of to explain the why behind um, the need for some uh, pre-treatment prior to removing the victims once we've located them, just to increase that survivability for the patient. Hmm. There's just so much that the people there are going through. I do want to ask you... Josh Svensson, how you deal with the stress of, of all of what you're witnessing as well, as you described so poignantly, it, it is just really difficult and, and very new, unprecedented in terms of what you're seeing. 
Um, well, you know, most of the people on the team with us are firemen. So they're, you know, very accustomed to seeing just the most tragic things that any of the people I always hear it say their normal day is your worst day. Um, but for us, the, we're civilians, you know, there's seven of us from LA County Public Works that are part of this team mm-hmm. as structure specialists. Um, and that, yeah, you know, the four of us have been on uh, missions like this before. And so we've got a little bit of experience. I think we all know that there's going to be just a long process. You know, take it in, talk about it, take care of ourselves right now, get home and then give yourself room to process. I think, you know, the one thing I've been telling everybody is I talked to my family, talked to my wife and kids, you know, are you okay? I'm like, we're fine. You know, really be thinking, praying about the people here in Turkey and Syria. Like this is, um, they're just now coming out of shock. And I think there's going to be just a long road to recovery and they've shown a lot of resilience, but, um, I have hope from the conversations I've had with the, my, the Turkish friends we've made, um, to see that they are optimistic about the future because, uh, it's a devastating, uh, event. It's hard to imagine how they're going to come back. Are you getting any sense of when you might leave or, or might return to California? Uh, we uh, just follow the orders of the team, and so we're here as long as they need us. And so we don't have any definitive answer yet. Yeah, we have the capacity to uh, stay for up to uh, three weeks. If they just provided uh, fresh water, uh, we could filter it ourselves and fuel to run our uh, machinery. But one thing Josh didn't mention, which, you know, our, our team of structure pressure are you know, just an asset for us and are very humble is while we're on that site, once they've cleared it, they have started making those intimate contacts with the community here. And people, as the days went by, more and more grew into asking uh, our structure specialists to go inside their house to assess to see if the house was safe enough for them to stay so they wouldn't have to stay in the car. And that, you know, at a very, you know, down-to-earth and intimate level made huge uh, differences for these people in just their living conditions. In having, you know, us as USAID, they saw we've been working here hand-in-hand with them. But to, uh, they believed us and they would go inside their house from having to stay outside in their cars, you know, in, in, in this kind of weather. Well, I cannot thank you both enough for what you are doing there, the risks that you are putting yourselves in as well, and for taking the time to talk to us on Forum. Frank Infante is Battalion Chief for the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Josh Svensson is Structure Specialist with Los Angeles County Public Works. They are both with the USAID Search and Rescue Team in Adiaman, Turkey. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Today we're getting a first-hand account of the destruction in Turkey from members of a special search and rescue team from L.A. County that has been helping in Turkey. And we turn now for the remainder of the program to look at why earthquake experts, engineers in California, are saying the destruction that was described just in the segment before, that destruction on a similar scale could happen here. And joining me now is Dr. Lucy Jones, a research associate at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech, also founder of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Keith Porter is also with us, chief engineer at the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction and in a joint professor also at the University of Colorado Boulder School of Engineering and Applied Science. Dr. Keith Porter, glad to have you on as well. Thanks very much. So, Dr. Jones, speaking seismologically, I just want to ask you about the East Anatolian Fault in Turkey. How does it compare to California's San Andreas Fault? It's extremely similar to the San Andreas Fault. They're both what are called transform faults, uh, plate boundaries, moving at similar rates, and similar distribution of people near the fault. So uh, we've had 7.8s, exactly this size earthquake, in the past in California, 1906 up north and 1857 in the south, and we will again. We will again. A lot has been made about the fact that we've been in a quote-unquote quiet period uh, since something that catastrophic? Should that be worrying? Or are earthquakes just so random, it really isn't a determinant of anything? It isn't a determinant of anything. They really are random. We want a pattern. The fact that they're random means you have to be worried all the time. And so we hate it. And we try to form patterns. Um, But as far as we can tell, it's like every year has about a 1% chance of a San Andreas earthquake. And that keeps on being the case, whatever happens. Uh, Dr. Porter, the level of destruction that we heard described in Turkey, um, and and we're mainly focusing on the destruction in Turkey because the infrastructure weaknesses in Syria have also been attributable to damage from the war, but is the scale of building collapse that we're hearing about and seeing images of in Turkey possible here in California? California can expect... Uh, better performance out of its buildings. Uh, We have lighter and generally stronger buildings than they have in Turkey. Um, But that's not to say that we won't have a lot of damage. Um, Take a Turkish earthquake, transplant it to California, and you can expect something on the order of a tenth as much uh, damage, destruction, misery, you know, give or take. But a tenth of really, really bad uh, can still be pretty bad. Yeah. What would you say to that, Dr. Jones, in terms of just the similarities? Well, actually, Keith and I worked together the first time to model just what a 7.8 on the Southern San Andreas Fault would look like. And our estimate was 1,800 dead, 1,500 completely collapsed buildings, and 300,000 buildings moderately to severely damaged. So it is less than what we're seeing in Turkey, but it's still way more than we've seen in California. Yeah. And and why is that? Uh, there's been a lot suggested mm-hmm. that maybe the building codes in Turkey are different or less okay. strong than they are here. But, uh, but Dr. Jones, it sounds like 
that we might be making an incorrect assumption there. Well, right. It would be very comforting to believe that their problems are because they did something wrong and therefore it won't happen to us. However, they use exactly the same building code. Their engineers are trained like ours. We work together with them a lot, right? So at the technical side, they're at the same level. But what's how do you go from a building code to a good building? There's three issues you've got to get over. One of them is that building codes aren't retroactive. So buildings that are there before the code was in place uh, aren't protected by it. And uh, the current code that prevents a lot of these damages was only brought in um, in Turkey about 20 years ago, uh, where you could argue that for the worst type of buildings that we've been protected for maybe 40 years in California. But there's still we have a lot of old ones. The second thing, of course, is enforcement. And that's what everybody's jumping to in Turkey. It's a cert, as I said, I think I'm not going to say there's no corruption. It sounds like there's been some serious issues. I think we have issues. And it's a it's a bit of um, let's blame the victim uh, so that we don't have to worry about it ourselves when we really focus on that so much. But the third issue, and this is another place where Keith and I have worked together, is the fact that our building code doesn't say protect the building. It says, make sure you can crawl out alive. And as long as it doesn't completely collapse on you, that's the only role of government to play. And so we have, we're intentionally building buildings that will be a complete financial loss. In fact, Keith has done an analysis of what a big San Andreas earthquake would do in downtown Los Angeles, and it's pretty grim. You want to give it, Keith? (laughs) Yeah, um, sure. Um, 1,800 deaths half of them from fires that follow the earthquake, 5,000 collapses, collapsed buildings in the entire region, 50,000 buildings red tagged. That's about one in every hundred buildings would be red tagged. 200,000 yellow tagged buildings. Those are buildings that are impaired in some way. You can't go into this room or you can't go near that corner of the building. That's 4% of the building stock. That's out of uh, 5 million buildings. There would be 50,000 injuries requiring emergency medical care, uh, at least one high-rise building collapse, and many red-tagged uh, high-rise buildings. Um, it would be bad. Yeah. Well, well, Keith, explain this to me a little bit. I, I imagine we understand what kinds of materials are more susceptible um, to destruction during a major earthquake, and that we have made efforts to retrofit them but but tell me why it would be at that scale. What are what are some of the issues with the existing buildings and what they're made of right now? Well, Lucy put her finger on the biggest issue that the building code is intended to give us disposable buildings. They're supposed to have a low but non-zero probability of collapsing when they're shaken very, very strongly in the kinds of earthquakes that we can reasonably foresee. Uh, So they're supposed to be safe, but uh, disposable. And many of the buildings that don't collapse are so heavily damaged that they're not safe to go back into. And many of the buildings that are still safe to go back into uh, uh, have some uh, moderate impairment. And all of that, you know, like chimneys falling over and stuff. And all of that is baked into the building code. We do that deliberately to keep the cost of new construction as low as possible. And it's not necessary. Um, People expect and are willing to pay for better performance out of our buildings, better performance than the building code uh, is actually intended Hmm. to uh, provide. 
Can I uh, jump most in? People expect new buildings. Sorry, go ahead. I just want to point out one of the things Keith said that the probability of collapse should be really low. You know, ninety-five percent chance it won't collapse sounds great for one building, but that does imply five percent of new-to-code buildings uh, actually collapsing once you yeah. put a lot of them out there. And that's what we've seen in other places. If you look at what happened in New Zealand when they had their design earthquake in Christchurch in 2011, one uh, modern building collapsed. It killed uh, over 100 people, uh, but 1,800 had to be torn down because they were so badly damaged. And that's that's the code being successful. That's when it huh. is enforced. I see. So you're saying, yes, fine, maybe you've had buildings that didn't, collapse, but what good are they if they are red tagged and deemed uninhabitable? That's right. what you're saying, Dr. Jim. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, a lot of people are displaced. And yeah. there's a big there's a big issue. I mean the rate of suicides after major disasters goes up substantially because maybe you don't die because your building wasn't crushed, but it's now destroyed and you're bankrupt and you can't support your family. And uh we see suicide uh rates increase by over 20% in the aftermath of major disasters. Wow. And, um, yeah, go ahead, awful, Keith Porter. A lot of, an awful lot of people uh, are, you know, are just terribly, terribly stressed. I visited um, the Ferndale earthquake, the sm a smaller earthquake that we had in Northern California um, a couple of months ago. And some social workers told me that half to three quarters of the residents of uh, Rio Dell uh, which was one of the strongest uh, shaken communities up there, half or three quarters of the population were they felt were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. It's a very stressful thing. Well, Dr. Porter, you said something interesting that I want to ask our listeners as well, and that is, would you be willing to bear the cost to strengthen buildings in your community to a higher earthquake standard? Are there things that you'd like to share that you or your community has done to strengthen your home for an earthquake? You can email forum at kqbd.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. And of course, California is no stranger to earthquakes. And if you've personally experienced one and want to share what that was like, you feel free to do that as well. So, Dr. Jones, we hear a lot about certain kinds of buildings um, that we should be on the lookout for. These are soft story buildings, concrete buildings, or brittle concrete buildings is what we've been hearing about. And, and that's been talked about a lot with regard to Turkey, you know, brick buildings, sort of old masonry. But because we've identified that, I thought that uh, they are they are being retrofitted. <laughs> and so can you tell me to what degree that is happening? It absolutely depends on where you are. I mean, identifying the problem does not make the buildings disappear. You now have to find the political will to mandate people spending money on their own, you know, being forced to spend money on their own property um, by government. You know, that's not something that's easy to get through politically. When you look at the worst buildings, what are called the unreinforced masonry, those really are some of the deadliest. Only half of the jurisdictions in California have required retrofit of those buildings. Right? So half of them still, it's a voluntary program. When you look at these 
uh, yeah, brittle concrete buildings, you know, the engineers call them non-ductile, but yeah, yeah, basically means brittle. It's the type of concrete construction that was very common in our commercial buildings before 1975, 1980, the 71 earthquake, a completely new building was completely collapsed. And they said, oops, wow, we've got to change the, the code for that. Those buildings, as far as I know, there are only three jurisdictions in all of California, the city of Los Angeles, Santa Monica, and West Hollywood. So all here in Southern California have mandated retrofit of those buildings. No, I don't know of any community in Northern California that's done it. And uh, even here, I mean, they've given them 25 years to do it because these are commercial structures. People have 10-year, 20-year leases. They need to be able to – and it's difficult. You can't just leave the tenants in there and get it done like you can with Soft First Story. Soft First Story, we are seeing more communities uh, adopt mandatory retrofit, but it's on the order of about 20 jurisdictions in California. The overwhelming majority – there's over 300 jurisdictions. The overwhelming majority still haven't done anything. Well, listener Jesse writes, I subscribe to the Earthquake app. It's been great so far. I've always watched curiously as I know the big one will come sooner or later. I feel confident in the apartment I live in now, but it was built in the 1960s. How do I know if it's been earthquake retrofitted? Does it make a difference if a building was constructed on rock instead of ground fill, for example, Bernal Heights versus Mission Bay? Keith, do you want to take that question about uh, whether it makes a difference if a building was constructed on rock instead of ground fill? Yeah, um, it does make a difference. Uh, uh, soft soil uh, fill or uh, like the sand dunes that are out in the Richmond or the Sunset District in San Francisco, they shake more strongly. The, the soft soil shakes stronger than the rock does. So when the soil underneath the building shakes stronger, it shakes the building more strongly and it's more likely to uh, suffer damage. And, and how would Jesse know if it's earthquake retrofitted, Dr. Jones? She would need to, well, start by asking the landlord. Of course, you've got to wonder whether, it, and um, and you've got to ask the building department. Now, if you're in the city of San Francisco, uh, you know that the software story has been retrofitted, but that's the only one that there's. it's probably been done for. Um, it's unlikely, in fact, that it's been retrofitted unless it's mandated um, uh, by the government. Why are building codes not necessarily being enforced, at least not at the level that it should be, it sounds like you're saying, Dr. Jones. Well, they're enforced. The question is, what code is being enforced? Why aren't the codes written to a higher standard? Hmm. And and you got me. I mean, I the many people believe that it must be very expensive to do this. But there was just a new affordable housing complex built in the city of San Francisco, where the owners decided to go for what we call a functional recovery standard, be able to recover the function of the building, be able to repair it after the earthquake. And it ended up adding 0.25% to the cost of construction. So in fact, the increased cost is really quite small and more than paid back by what happens to the whole community. One of the issues is we expect the owner to pay all the extra cost and the whole community gets the extra benefit. It's been one of the things in the getting in the way of retrofitting. But in terms of the codes, I I just don't understand. We've had two bills in the state legislature trying to move us towards a functional recovery standard. The first one made it through the legislature, but was vetoed by Governor Brown at the end of his term saying, oh, we need federal standards. Well, National Institute of Standards and Technology has now created those standards. 
They got another bill going through the legislature and it ended up dying in the Senate. So somebody's out there going, we don't want that to happen and have worked against it. But I don't I don't understand the justification. Hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit as an engineer? If the weaker standard is the one that we're doing, which is the life safety standard, like you're not going to die necessarily, or at least, I mean, that's hard to predict, but at least you kind of get closer to that, as opposed to a functional recovery standard where you not only don't die, but your building is also recoverable or whatever, if I'm paraphrasing that correctly. Like, why do we do that? Don't we don't we rely on engineers also to make those determinations? And, and how do you as somebody in the engineering field feel about that? Well, I, I think that uh, the the reason that we don't have better building codes, it comes down to regulatory capture. The people who are regulated are writing the codes, the the builders, the building, the, the engineers, the architects. Uh, we're writing the building codes. Uh, we don't have leadership. We don't have direction from uh, the assembly or the governor or the federal government to say, make new buildings earthquake proof or make new buildings uh, cost uh, less in the long run, even if it means they cost a little bit more uh, to buy initially. There is not that political leadership coming from anywhere outside of the engineers, the architects, mm -hmm. and the building professionals. And the building professionals are lobbying heavily. Their interest is best served by having buildings cost as little as possible up front. So that's why we have uh, sort of been satisfied with life safe design. And uh, Lucy made the point that the National Institute of Standards and Technology is working on this functional recovery standard. It's, it's working on it. It is not there yet. And it may turn out to have voluntary standards rather than mandatory standards. Mm -hmm. We are not definitely going to have better building codes in a few years. And Lucy Jones, what Keith was saying about people who developers and so on, is that what you hear and their interests in terms of having the, the cheapest possible is that what you attribute to the main reasons that at least two bills in the last five years that were proposing a statewide functional recovery standard have failed? I, I think it has to be. You know, the the developers pay the money up front. It's the rest of us that get the benefit in the long run. That's why we have codes, because society has objectives it wants that are not going to be fulfilled solely out of a capitalist model at this point. And, um, you know, I really think that we need to separate these issues that you have developers, the engineers can tell us how to build a building, but the legislature should be telling us what buildings, types yeah. of buildings we want to have. We'll have more with Lucy Jones and Keith Porter after the break and with you, our listeners. I see your calls and comments. We'll get to them. I'm Mina Kim. This is Born. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Lucy Jones, Research Associate at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech, and Dr. Keith Porter, Chief Engineer of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction with the University of Colorado Boulder School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. And you, our listeners, are joining us with your questions and comments at 866-733-6786 by posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Let me go to calls and let me go to caller John in San Leandro. Hi, John. You're on. Good morning. Um, When we were looking for a house in 2019, um, uh, earthquake safety and foundation conditions were a major criterion. We had a structural engineer check out the foundation of the house before we put an offer on it. And then we put about, I'm guessing, $40,000 to $50,000 into uh, an earthquake retrofit for the house, so it is not just bolted down, but it's survi- going to be more survivable. Wow. And that feels really good to me. Uh, it's our second earthquake retrofit, and I highly recommend it. Uh, it's too bad that it's on the, the shoulders of homeowners instead of being a legal responsibility in the state, and I'm it bothers me a whole lot that our governors and legislators are being bought by the real estate industry and builders and so on and swayed by the penny-wise, pound-foolish hmm. logic of that. Um, it was a lot of resources for you, John, but I, I'm glad you, you feel safer as a result of it. Um, let me go to Alex in Burlingame next. Hi, Alex. You're on. Hi. Great program. Great topic um, for California. Um, I own a, um, a property in Oakland. It's a 10-unit um, uh, building that's on the soft story retrofit mandated list. So uh, I have a, a deadline to, to have uh, the soft story, uh, which is basically a parking structure that uh, has on stilts uh, that is needed to, uh, to be retrofitted by uh, 2024. Uh, so the estimate is going to be about $170,000, which is uh, very steep. Um, and as you know, in Oakland, there's, you know, there's uh, renters' rights. So I'm not really, you know, um, uh, I'm not really uh, sitting on that kind of cash. Uh, but there don't seem to be any funding programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there was one from FEMA that uh, that might have came and went. Uh, I've talked to the FEMA department. And they said that there's uh, maybe funding coming. I've called around all in Oakland. There's no financing whatsoever. So it, it's all well, on me. Well, let me see. Lucy, do you have, yeah. yeah, any any idea what could help Alex? Okay, yeah. The, it, it depends upon the local jurisdictions. I know when Los Angeles did it, they allowed half of the cost to be recovered under rent control. And so it, but that becomes a local jurisdiction. There was also, this is another thing that just failed, I gather, in uh, the legislature. There was uh, proposed big funding to to help the uh, 
apartment owners get this done and I gather it just failed. Um, so it is a part, you know, this is, if we really want safety, we can't put it all on the owners when we're all benefiting. We've got to work together as a society to get it done. But I don't know of a program right now. There's been attempts to get it that haven't been successful. Well, Lorraine writes, multi-density housing is touted as the solution for the affordable housing crisis in California. We are seeing so many massive high-rise housing complexes being built. I think of them as beehive housing. What is the safety outlook for residents in such a structure during a 7-plus magnitude earthquake? What do you think, Keith Porter? Are they more dangerous, multi-story, multi-density housing? No, they're not fundamentally more dangerous. Um, wood frame building, uh, most uh, multifamily dwellings are made of wood as opposed to concrete and brick like we see in Turkey. Um, and those tend to be very durable, especially ones that we're building today that lack a lot of these, the weaknesses of older uh, multifamily dwellings. We, the ones you build today, they're not going to have that soft story problem that you're going to have to retrofit. That said, they're still built to the current code that still intends them to be life safe. So a build a new uh, multifamily dwelling is going to be roughly as safe as a new single family dwelling, roughly as safe as any other new building. And that's going to be safe, but not necessarily uh, uh, economically survivable in a big earthquake. Well, listener George writes, I'm a general contractor in the Bay Area, and the cost of building is already much higher than any average citizen can afford. I disagree with today's guest assessment that people are willing to bear the cost of additional or stronger building codes for new construction. It may be the case that the average tech worker doesn't mind paying another 10 or 15 percent on top of the already exorbitant cost to build in the Bay Area, but that's not the case for the average working person in these parts. I think it is specious to argue that people are willing to absorb more of the costs associated with improving size make survivability. Lucy Jones, do you have a response for George? Well, it it, it is not an increase in 10%. As I said, they, they just had a, a new structure complex built in San Francisco, and the extra cost was 0.25%. So, um, and that's a very different thing than adding 10 or 15%. So we overestimate the cost because it seems like it should cost a lot. And the fact is it doesn't. Hmm. Again, we're talking with Dr. Lucy Jones, Research Associate for the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech, and Dr. Keith Porter, Chief Engineer at the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. And you are listeners at 866-733-6786, emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Keith, did I hear you wanting to add something there? Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, George, uh, it's true that a lot of people don't want to pay more for safer buildings. Uh, but it is not a specious argument. We actually carried out scholarly research, big surveys of large numbers of people. And we asked them, uh, and the majority said that they did want buildings that would survive uh, the big one. Uh, and they were willing to pay. We asked them, how much are you willing to pay for that? They told us, and it was well in excess of the quarter percent that uh, Lucy just mentioned. And the figure that Lucy just mentioned it is in line with uh, other studies around the country of how much more it costs to make buildings a whole lot more resilient to earthquakes and to other natural disasters. Let me go to caller Frank in San Jose. Hi, Frank. You're on. 
Hi. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is a seismology type question. Uh, best case, uh, what's the uh, best case warning time before an actual equate like a seven would occur? And is there anything being done in, in the seismology field to improve or lengthen that warning time for, mm-hmm. for, the, for the population? Frank, thanks. It's reminding me, Lucy, when we had you on back in November, it was because a lot of people for the first time experienced that warning on their phones and were unsure quite what to do. But to Frank's question, you know, what is the best case in terms of warning times for something of that magnitude? And are there efforts to improve it? Well, remember, the warning doesn't get created before the earthquake begins. It gets created because we've recognized that the earthquake has begun and we're sending that information to you at the speed of light electronically and the waves have to travel at the speed of sound to get to you. So the farther away you are, the more warning you have, but also, of course, the less damage that you have. So increasing the warning time means less need for the warning, unfortunately. Um, there's really no way, that we can't really increase it. This is a fundamental of the physics of the earthquake. What we can do, the more seismic stations we put out, the more, the more quickly we will get enough information to be able to send out a warning. And that will, of course, then um, uh, shorten the time a little bit on that. There's also on the, the uh, distribution side, um, the Android has actually worked with the U.S. Geological Survey and they have a warning innate to the, uh, to the phone, uh, whereas Apple uh, hasn't done that yet, and it takes a bit longer to get a warning on an Apple phone. So there's a little bit that can be helped there, but fundamentally we can't change it. The one other thing is that there's one way in which you do get a longer warning and high damage, and that's you know the length of the fault that moves in the earthquake is what determines the magnitude. So for a really big earthquake, you potentially might get more than a minute's warning and still get strong shaking because the the rupture is moving towards you. So imagine if the 1906 earthquake began at Cape Mendocino instead of down in San Francisco Bay, you would have over a minute from the beginning of the earthquake till you got strong shaking in the Bay Area. Um, But it also complicates the message. When it begins up at Cape Mendocino, you know there's an earthquake on the San Andreas. You don't know that it's going to grow big enough to affect San Francisco. So the warning has to be adjusted over time as the information comes through that the earthquake is growing down the fault. Well, Beth writes, maybe it's because I'm a fifth generation Californian, live in the wildfire Sierras, or have gone a week or more when a winter storm knocked out power. But having food, water for a month, as well as a small solar setup is pure survival. Do people simply think the state or federal government will rescue them so they need do nothing? Just on an individual level in terms of just making yourself safer and, and more comfortable, hopefully, after a significant earthquake. Um, what would you say, Lucy Jones, to our listeners, the key well, most important things? Uh, sure, supplies are important. Go bag is not particularly because you're not going anywhere after the earthquake. You're probably, you know, there's no uh, predictions. So you're probably staying in place. Um, but to me, the most important thing you can do is talk with your neighbors and your friends and your family about this. The research is very clear that the communities that are best able to recover from natural disasters are ones where people are connected to each other. They have strong social capital, as they say, and it makes people want to stay in place. So the more that you have talked about it ahead of time, the better you're going to be afterwards.
Yes. I'm also so struck by that being a reminder in Turkey when people were saying that they, people they know and were able to point rescue teams to uh, were the ones who were first trying to be rescued. And your comment about getting to know your neighbors has really stayed with me, Lucy Jones. Keith Porter, is there anything you would add to that in terms of on an um, individual level, one or two steps you can take? Well, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you should be prepared for power to be out for potentially weeks, uh, water to be unavailable for potentially weeks. Um, big. Uh, if we had a big earthquake in the San Francisco Bay Area on the Hayward Fault, the most strongly shaken areas, um, in some cases, some places, water will be unavailable for six months. So, um, being ready for that, I don't, I don't know how you how you get ready for six months of uh, being without water. That's a that's a big problem for the state. Yeah. Well, we are talking about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and what the disaster can teach. Californians. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In terms of just securing your home, Keith Porter, what are a few simple things people can do? Well, um, there's some really good, relatively low-cost things you can do. If you have a house that was built before about 1940, uh, chances are good that it, when it was built, it wasn't originally bolted to its foundation. So you can go in, you can add foundation bolts. And up until about 1960, uh, houses that had a first floor that was raised above the ground, the little walls between the foundation and the first floor, they're called cripple walls, they were weak. So you can go in, you can add plywood or oriented strand board to those little walls and make that stronger. That that That's a retrofit program uh, called... Uh, uh, brace and bolt. The average house to do that costs about uh, $5,300 uh, to retrofit. Now, it can be much more depending on the size of the house and the complexity, but the but the average is about $5,300 to fix that. If you've got a three quarters of a million dollar house, then $5,000 or so to make it stronger is seems pretty affordable to me. And we remember that the, also the California Earthquake Authority has a program called the Brace and Bolt Program in which they give out grants of up to $3,000 to cover that retrofit. Now, it's only certain uh, zip codes, but I think the, essentially the whole Bay Area is eligible for this. And they recently got a big uh, pot of money from FEMA that's allowed them to greatly expand the number of grants that they're giving out. Mm, well, and, and yes, go ahead, more. Keith. Oh, sorry. Uh, if I can add one more point, um, the uh, uh, there's a there's a big upside to doing this uh, retrofit. Um, not just that you're going to, you know, if, if if the earthquake happens while you're in the house, your house is much more likely to survive. But a lot of people have been finding that uh, when they go to sell their house and they say that it, they they can say that it's been seismically retrofitted, they're getting a big bump in the resale value. We're finding this for uh, retrofitted um, homes in the in California, uh, retrofitted against earthquake, and we've seen it for uh, homes that are stronger in resisting hurricanes along the Gulf Coast. People value uh, a safer home, and they are willing to pay for it when you go to sell. So you you might make back the the cost of that retrofit many many times over. Well, Laura writes, I retrofitted my home and feel good about it. But what about gas lines? My home could still burn down. 
for Laura? Any thoughts on gas lines? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. One is that um, if you strap your water heater down so that it can't topple, that's one of the uh, ways most likely to have the gas line break within your own house. Um, you could also make your commitment to clean energy and remove gas from your house. Uh, has a you know, climate change benefit as well as the earthquake benefit. Um, it, you can also make sure that anyone who's ever going to be alone at uh, at home alone knows how to turn off the gas. All of those are ways to greatly reduce the losses from it. And I would comment that you know, what Keith was talking about when we looked at uh, modeling how the fire following earthquake happens and you look at the history of fires after earthquakes, the majority are actually caused by electrical causes rather than gas. Obviously, gas has problems, but you've got to think about both issues as well. well let me go to call Crow no, in no. Point Richmond. Hi, Crow, you're on. Hey, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm an older general contractor, and uh, what I do with my clients, instead of going through the structural engineering and, and the permit process, I simply just add in structural walls, shear walling, uh, that is non-engineered, but to the same standard, and it reduces the cost to the to the client quite a bit because you're going you're circumventing all the added costs of engineering and permits. So I just thought I'd add that as a contractor, and saying we can we as contractors can reduce the overall cost of making sure that we retrofit with with just our own personal experiences. Hmm. Well, another contractor has written here. I am also a contractor, and I agree with your guests. Many older homes have almost no connection to their foundations, and many things can be done. Even diagonal bracing and shear wall can improve a home's chance. I also know that the economic disaster can be worse than the event. And I think that really is what you have both been trying to hit home. Um, Lucy Jones, we just have one last question from a listener that I'd love to get your thoughts on. Greg was a little confused about the likelihood of a big earthquake independent of how long it's been since the last big earthquake. I don't understand that, Greg Wright, since the plates are always trying to drift and the stress along the fault is increasing continuously. Yeah, that's what we thought. That's the way we tried to model it. Uh, it's not what we see. And what we think is going on, actually, is that the earthquake doesn't happen because the whole fault has gotten up to that high stress level. Rather, there's a high stress level at some little asperity on the fault. And once the fault starts to move, then it can't stop and it keeps on going. Um, the stresses at which earthquakes are happening are way below what we see in the laboratory. So we know there's some process other than just reaching the failure stress uh, that's going on when we have the earthquake. Well, Lucy Jones of Caltech, Keith Porter of University of Colorado Boulder School of Engineering and Applied Science. Thank you both so much. Thank you, listeners. Stay safe. Thank you, producers, for producing this, today's segment. Grace Wan produced today's segment. Forum's team is also Caroline Smith, Susie Britton, Susie, Susan Davis, Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, and Jericho Reininger. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.